You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. What's up, 26ers? Welcome to another episode of the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Ramon Peralta, founder and creative director of Peralta Design, a digital creative agency that has worked with the likes of the NFL, Disney, and a host of startups and Fortune 500 brands. Not too long ago, Ramon celebrated his agency's 10th year anniversary by scoring $1 million in revenue. He's come a long way from drawing caricatures on t-shirts at parties during his days as a visual arts major at the University of Bridgeport. Ramon is a savvy entrepreneur, so it's hard to believe that the Great Recession of 2008 is what landed him in the role of business owner. Before being let go like so many others, Ramon was in a pretty enviable position, working as a creative director at Walker Innovation, helping launch multiple companies, including Priceline. But when the tide shifted and he found himself unemployed, Ramon seized the opportunity to serve a segment of the population that a lot of larger organizations were ignoring. Peralta Design has since evolved into a formidable player in the competitive world of creative agencies, and he gives us a glimpse into how he made it happen. So please take a listen, and I hope you enjoy. Ramon, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? Good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here, and thanks for having us. So we are in the beautiful Peralta Design offices here in Connecticut. It's a great change of pace for us in a new environment. It's calm out here and quiet. It is. I'm not complaining about not being in Manhattan right now. (laughs) Well, I was looking forward to coming into the city anyway, but uh, this made it even easier. Hey, we made it happen. Yeah. We're killing two birds with one stone today. So tell me, who is Ramon Peralta? Who is Ramon Peralta? I've been thinking about that since you said you were going to ask me that, <laughs> but I need more time. No. Um, so I am living the dream and I am extremely grateful. Uh, my life has been uh, the exact scribble that you've seen on that illustration of what success mm-hmm. is, where it's just gone all over the place. Um, I am never satisfied, so I always strive to do more. I keep my Myself busy, uh, and um, I'm fortunate to have a great team here. And uh, we are a, a creative agency. And uh, without this team, I couldn't do all the philanthropy that I do and all the, the speaking to young people that I do. And, and that's really the, the blessing is that I'm at a point in my life now uh, where I can give back. Uh, I sit on a number of boards and it just makes life worth living because um, professionally, I feel like I'm living my calling. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and I also can contribute back um, and, and give back some of those uh, second chances that I've been given uh, in life. So uh, it, it's, it's a, I'm in a great place. Um, really. So uh, professionally and and, uh, personally. So it feels really good. Awesome. So we're going to start to unpack that. And I'm going to do this one a little bit differently Mm -hmm. than than we normally do. Let's talk about the dream that you're living today. I want to get into that a little bit more. What is this amazing creative agency that you've built? Right. So we launch brands. That's our tagline. And basically we are in the idea business. People come to us with an idea for a new company or a new product or service, or they're an existing company. Uh, Like you mentioned, the merger and acquisition, what does that new company look like? Or will there be a new name or a new culture that needs to get implemented? And how do we go about doing that? And people come to us to prototype uh, new ideas that they may not have uh, the funding to fully launch. So we we do a lot of vaporware. Um, We've built a team in-house that can execute on a new mobile app 
or a new website or a new marketing strategy, new uh, social strategy, but it's all in the interest of launching something. So that's very exciting for us because people come to us and we get to help them realize their dreams. Um, and we're, you know, ourselves being in our 11th year are, are a, a living and breathing example of how you can start, you know, from your home and build it into a company. So we leverage a lot of our own real experience, uh, as well as my time working at an incubator. I spent um, 10 years at Walker Digital. It, that was the incubator behind Priceline. Um, and being a part of that team and being a part of that process uh, gave me kind of the, the wisdom and foresight to kind of say, okay, this this idea, we can turn this into something and this is how we do it. So helps us stand out amongst other creative agencies um, because we were combining a bit of creativity, technology, and business. And and I've been afforded opportunities to study at Tuck. So uh, in addition to design school, um, and then we have this great technology technological uh, team here in-house. Um, it allows us to provide superior service to, to our customers. So we have clients all over the country. We have a client in Qatar. So we have our our first international client. Um, And we have a small satellite office in Florida that uh, I go back and forth to. I know it's tough, but somebody's got to do it. such a hard Um, life to live. So uh, that, that gives us a bit of a of a more national footprint. So when we're bidding on a project in Texas or Atlanta, having two locations on our proposals kind of lets those clients know like, hey, these guys are, they've got a wide reach. So it gives us a good position. So people will hear what you just described mm-hmm. and immediately, you know, for the creatives mm-hmm. uh, that listen to the show will think, this guy li- is living my dream. Mm-hmm. Like most people think when you have a creative streak, And they may be able to visualize this, a creative Mm -hmm. agency that comes up with ideas, executes, project manages, you know, the whole nine. But Mm -hmm. they have a hard time visualizing how to monetize and grow that and sustain themselves. Because let's be real, there are juggernauts who do this that everyone knows. That's their go to. And that's it. Did you know in your gut? always that I can do this and I can compete in this space? Or did that knowing evolve over time? It evolved over time. I never thought I could do it full time. Mm-hmm. I always did it on the side. Okay. I always uh, felt like um, I, I, I had a side hustle, you know, mm-hmm. from, from from the times I was in, you know, in school. Um, I started my business while I was in college because I wanted to do caricatures, you know, at, at the at the parties. Um, you know, on campus. Mm-hmm. So it was basically uh, an opportunity to make extra money. Um, that's literally how my, my business started was just, oh, I'm going to do caricatures at the beach party or I'm going to do them on campus for $10 a piece. It was a very, initially a very, very small vision. Okay. So hold on. Caricatures yeah. like you get on the boardwalk when you go to like yeah. Seaside that's Heights. What or... I, that's what I used to do in college. Okay. You know? So so take, take us back. What yeah. year was this? This is uh, maybe 1991. Okay, 1990. 1991, yeah. 1990, that time frame, and you yeah. were at University of Bridgeport. Bridgeport. Right. And yeah, so. And what's your major? My point? major at the time was uh, a Bachelor of Fine Arts mm-hmm. uh, in Visual Arts. Okay. So in school, I only took one computer class. Really? You know, everything else was uh, painting, drawing, uh, photography, silk screening, sculpture. Um, and we took a computer class, but it was using it as a, just another medium. It wasn't mm-hmm. like, I, I mean, I was in computer class. Uh, computer club in high school, but you really couldn't, uh, back in those days in the 80s, we didn't, really didn't have the software we have now. So it was more programming. And I knew I didn't like programming, you know, like I didn't like coding. I, I spent, uh, you know, a couple hours typing code to make a smiley face when I could just sketch one, you know, and I, and I always was a good artist and a good 
you know, I knew that was my gift. And so I want, I thought I wanted to do something, uh, you know, for a long time, I guess I, I romanticized this idea of being a painter, you know, of, uh, you know, wandering the streets of New York City with a canvas with uh, Basquiat and all this. And that was my idea of what my, you know, uh, life was going to be like, you know, at a, at a time. Um, but, um, Things didn't go that way. So um, to backtrack as to how my business started, one of my art uh, professors said, hey, I, I have a friend of mine who's having a birthday party and he's looking for a caricature artist. Um, you know, and I made a business card, gave it to her. He gave it to the guy. The guy hired me. Um, the party was in Bridgeport. It was at a gay club. <laughs> Um, so I had to stare at gay, you know, men, you know, for the entire night for a birthday party. There were guys dressed up as Superman and it was wild. Were there G-strings? With G-strings, okay. yeah. It, the, the stripper was dressed as Superman, right. Um, but I took the gig, you know, I made a couple hundred bucks and, uh, I got the sense of like, wow, I could get paid, you know, for, for my, for my talents, you know, and that prompted me to then get a sales and use tax ID with the state of Connecticut. Cause then I, you know, my teacher, my professor was like, look, you you know, you can buy supplies and not pay taxes on them and all this. And that's that was the original, um, you know, uh, LLC, if you will. Uh, and originally the company was called Peralta Illustration and Design because okay. I, I, I thought I was going to be doing more fine art, uh, you know, and that's kind of where, where it began. That was a long time ago. Okay, let's talk about cultural expectation yeah. because yeah. you are the son of immigrant parents, correct? Yes. So often, you know, we talk about this a lot on the yeah. show. Um, and those of us who have yeah. connections to immigrant populations, we tend to seek out stability mm -hmm. because that's what our parents want. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's what our community wants. Like yeah. go to school, get a good job, mm -hmm. something that you know is going to give you a paycheck and a mm -hmm. pension one day. How supportive were your parents to this dream of being yeah. a wandering artist in the streets of New York City? No, they... they <laughs> They thought I was going to become an architect. Okay, you know, like in their minds to get to get their heads around a job that I could do uh, with art. Uh, architect was the closest kind of thing, and um, I knew I wasn't going to be one. I wasn't very good in math. Still, I'm not. Um, hire hire a CPA. That would be my advice to any entrepreneur out there. Don't do your own taxes, um, even if you think you're going to save money. Uh, hire a professional. But uh, I thought I was going to be an architect, and then when I went to school uh, for art. Um, I thought I could become an illustrator. And I, I was, I, I visited the Society of Illustrators in New York City. And I said, wow, you know, I can get paid a lot of money to be an illustrator for like Time Magazine and, and all this. And as you guys know, over the last 10, 20 years, that stuff's changed where they're using clip art, they're using yes. uh, artwork that's put up on the wire, you know, stock uh, photography or stock illustration. So it's not as lucrative as, as, it, as it used to be. But, um, you know, my dad was a mechanic. You know, my both my parents worked in factories. My dad got bored with working in the factory, started fixing cars in the yard. And that's kind of where I got this idea that you could do something on the side. Um, so he worked during the day, then fixed cars at night. And eventually... Moved, started fixing cars full time, um, and uh, he went to Rhode Island Trade Shop School, and watched. I watched him kind of learn how to do body work and paint cars, and that. And I was the oldest kid, so I I had to work with him, you know. So I remember being, I remember you know like drawing, you know, and him just saying, "All right, we're going. We gotta go. We gotta go to work. We gotta go do whatever." Like he didn't see art. As a future, he saw it as just something that, like a hobby, something that I did on the side. Um, but um, I always kind of knew that was my way out. I didn't want to be a mechanic. I kind of felt like 
at 16, I'm towing cars, I'm fixing cars, I'm selling cars. I could do this. Like if I go out there and all, all else fails, I can. I know I can sell cars. I know I can fix cars, but it just wasn't what I wanted to do. I felt like I have this talent, I have this ability. Um, fortunately for me in high school, my, my professors um, saw that and I got afforded a chance to attend uh, Rhode Island School of Design, uh, RISD, um, once a week after school. And that, that kind of gave me the... the um, the feeling of like, all right, this is my way out of the hood, if you will. Um, and uh, and that, that kind of got me into preparing a portfolio. It got me into uh, saying, okay, if you want to get into art school, you've got to go walk around. I went to Boston and um, went from table to table showing my portfolio. And the way I got to Bridgeport was literally, uh, you know, I showed my portfolio and the, and the professor from Bridgeport noticed that one of the drawings was an, wasn't an original drawing. It was like an arm study. Mm. And he was like, wait a minute, that's Bridgman's, you know, Guide to Drawing from Life, page 54. <laughs> and I was like blown away. I was like, wait. And he was like, you know, you should really be drawing from life. You shouldn't be copying it out of a book. So I used to collect comic books and, you know, every mm -hmm. kid draw, tries to draw the Hulk or Spider-Man from a comic. And that's what I was doing. That shouldn't have been in my portfolio and uh he called me out on it but instead of getting offended i was i got impressed by it and uh and then he that got me a visit to the campus and then one of the things i fell in love with uh about bridgeport was um uh, how progressive it was from a racial standpoint, because I grew up in Providence. In the 70s, Providence was very segregated, mm -hmm. a lot of mafia. Um, Dominicans lived in one neighborhood, Italians lived in another, you know, blacks lived in another, Cambodians lived in another, and you didn't really mi mingle too much. And um, I, I got into a lot of... Uh, a lot of trouble, um, and I needed to get out of Providence. And when I came to Bridgeport, um, I saw a police car go by, and it had a black officer and a Puerto Rican officer in the front seat, mm -hmm. you know, and I was kind of like, I, could, I can dig this. And having been born in New York City, um, this was like the perfect kind of place. I felt like I could make it home. It was similar to Providence, but it was a little bit more progressive, and that, that's how I ended up uh, attending UB. So... I want to get back to uh, Peralta illustration design yeah. and how you built that out from mm -hmm. $200 at a gay party. Yeah. Um, but I want to take a little <laughs> bit of a detour yeah. only because, um, as I mentioned before we went on air here, mm -hmm. uh, today I was a part of a workshop for about 70 high school girls who mm -hmm. go to a cooperative arts education high yeah. school. Um, and they were great, mm -hmm. very engaged, asking a lot of questions, but in almost every one-on-one -on -one conversation that I had, a 16, 15, 16, 17-year-old said to me, I really want to be a designer mm -hmm. or I really want to be an artist. Mm -hmm. I really want to be a creative, but there's no money in that. Mm -hmm. I don't know how I would make it. So I'd rather go to nursing. Like, what mm -hmm. do I do? Or I'm going to study to um, be a journalist mm -hmm. or, you know, because it's a little creative, but maybe mm -hmm. I can work at a newspaper. And it's, it's interesting because they were wanting me to say, no, if yeah. you want to be a creative, that's what you should do. Mm -hmm. um, or say, no, go work corporate because that's mm -hmm. where the money is. So what do you say to those students who are in the position that you were in all those years ago yeah. who want to follow their passion but also feel a need to follow the money mm -hmm. and also don't have supportive parents yeah. who are saying, yeah, go chase your creativity. Right, right. I think you got to, I, I like to say, well, if money, if money wasn't a factor or if money wasn't why you were doing this, what would you be doing? If you already had all the money in the world, what would you do and follow that? Um, and yes, I knew all along that uh, I was getting into an industry that was very competitive, um, but I also uh, was willing to put the work in. And, I, I, and one of the things I said in my commencement was like, look at the sacrifices that your parents have gone through to get you to where you are now. Don't squander that. 
and 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 having having grown up with that and seeing my my mom retire from factory work you know working in factories her whole life i wasn't going to not uh Kind of, I wasn't going to give up. And I think people that have that attitude, um, they're just giving up before it starts. And I remember one time being at a being at a bank, uh, making a deposit and having, a, you know, another a, a guy, you know, dressed like blue collar. He was dressed like a mechanic or a plumber. I forgot what it was. And and he was talking to the teller and he was telling the teller how he went to school for graphic design. Mm-hmm. But he clearly was not a graphic designer. And I think it happens. I think that, uh, you know, um, in any field, you're, you're going to, you know, yeah, you can pick on create you know creatives but i mean if you can you talk about music you talk about football you talk about anything where you have a very slim chance of being in that top percentile um you have to believe in yourself enough to kind of say you know what i'm still going to put my hat in the ring and i'm still going to put in the work it's just going to make it that much harder what i tell my clients now uh can apply so if somebody came to me and said i'm opening a pizza place in shelton connecticut i would say get in line because there's a million of them so i would ask my next question would be was what's going to make your pizza place different so if you want to get if you want to become a designer if you want to get into uh creativity if you wanted to get into a field that's going to be very hard to compete in what's going to make you different and i think we all have uh, unique experiences that make us ourselves. It, it, you know, somebody can copy me from my colors to my logo to everything, but they can't copy what I've been through. Right. And that's what I want to get through in the way I treat people and the way I communicate, the way I, the way I run my team, because those are the things that are going to be unique to me. Um, so once you identify what makes you different or your product different or your company different, you begin the process of branding yourself and, and branding yourself is how do you, how do I communicate those differences consistently and effectively. And and that's really advice that works for me, works for my company, can work for any other company or person that, that's saying, you know what, here's my dream, but I'm not going to pursue it because it's going to be tough. Or, right. or it's, it's there are a million people doing it. That's when you got to kind of say, well, what makes me different? Um, another thing that I would say is uh, the soul searching aspect. You really got to have for me, you know, I can only speak for myself. My relationship with God is, you know, when, when the chips are down, I got to say, well, God, if you put me in this situation, this, then this must be what I'm supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And I feel like whenever I get fearful and I'd be lying to you in this interview, if I said, yeah, you know, 11 years in, I never get fearful. Every now and then when that fear creeps in is when I is it's, is when I kind of take my will back, when I kind of say, well, you know what? I'm the one that should be taking the credit. Problem with that is that when things aren't going so great, you also want to take the blame. And then it's in those moments when the fear creeps in that I say, well, what if the phone stops ringing? Or what if clients don't call or come back? And that's when I, that's when I turn to, you know, some self-reflection and, 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 and my relationship with, with my higher power and say, well, if you put me in this situation, then this is what I'm supposed to do. And when I really truly feel like I'm living in my purpose, then the fear goes away. Mm-hmm. Because then it's like, well, everything's going to work out because this is what you're supposed to be doing. And that's why it's so important to go back to your original question. When you talk to these young people and they're not sure yet, that's okay. But if they do think they know what they want to do, but they don't want to pursue it because they're afraid, they've got to realize if this was planted in you, it's for a reason. Mm-hmm. And if and this reason is coming from some other place, the universe, we might say, if you're not a religious person or spiritual. Well, if the universe has put this in your heart, you've got to pursue it because you're supposed to do this. And when you 
you have that firm belief that this is something you're supposed to do, the fear goes away. And I think not only the fear, but the obsession with it happening overnight. Yeah, that's you know? yeah, that's that's the other thing. Mm-hmm. True. There's it's a deeper true. commitment to say, I'm going to stick this out. It may take a while. It may be a side hustle for longer than I'd like yeah. it to be. But I know this is what yeah. I've been called to do. Yeah, exactly. And I, I didn't uh, I didn't wake up one day and say, OK, I'm going to do this full time. You know, I was actually working, um, you know, like I said, at Walker for many years. You know, I spent 10 years between the time Priceline started and, and, and the day I got laid off. And one day I was just, you know, called in and said, you know, it's nothing personal, but we don't we don't need you. And um, you know, it was it was devastating. You know, um, if there's anything that we we discuss here, it's this idea that sometimes the worst things that happen to you end up being the best. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, did I just wake up one morning and say I want to start my company? No, I was actually you know, pushed off the ledge. And, and because I couldn't find a job, I started doing my, my, you know, my building my company full time. But um, it started at home. It started in my basement, you know, um, it started with me in my pajamas for most of the day, you know, and it's, it's got to start somewhere. Absolutely. So take me back. Um, I definitely want to talk about crash and, yeah. you know, how you got pushed off the ledge. Mm-hmm. But how did you get from that first illustration job mm-hmm. doing character? Making mm-hmm. two hundred bucks mm-hmm. to your first gig out of school. Mm-hmm. What what did that look like? Did you grow the side hustle in that time? But you were applying to positions and interviewing as yeah, well. Yeah, I, I I needed a job. I had a kid in college. Uh, it, literally, my my daughter was born while I was still in college, mm-hmm. um, and so I immediately had to work two three jobs. Like that's all I knew. So uh, and the side hustle. So uh, I put uh, my first computer on a on a credit card at CompUSA. Uh, CompUSA. I, I haven't heard someone <laughs> mention CompUSA. <laughs> And I don't know so, how long. Uh, you know, I had like four megabytes of RAM and <laughs> and, uh, and I just started pounding the pavement. I started, um, I did a lot of, you know, Jamaican house parties. I did a lot of, you know, uh, you know, Bashments. flyers. Yeah, bashments. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the bashments and the yard parties. And, uh, um, you know, and I I, be, I befriended all the local promoters, you know, on Bridgeport that were doing parties, all the local DJs. Um, and I would just design their flyers, you know, and then get them printed at Staples or Kinko's or wherever and, and uh, operated with a beeper. You know, uh, I know I'm old. Did people Take, have like I'm special codes? Yeah, special codes. And I'd have to find a payphone and call them back. And, you know, but... Um, but that's how it started was me doing party flyers, menus for restaurants. Um, and uh, I did a lot of work for Lovebug Starsky. Um, you know, when he was alive, we lost him a couple years ago, I think. Uh, but he lived in Bridgeport and uh, he was, you know, Rhythms Nightclub in Bridgeport was another one. So I would just go to these places. And every time I did a job, I'd, I'd put it in. I'd, I'd keep a copy for myself and I walked around with a little portfolio of like what I could do, um, you know, and I charged 50, 25, 50, 75 bucks for, for a flyer until I paid off the computer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, uh, and that's, that was the side hustle, um, for many years. And, uh, you know, um, uh, it grew into doing business cards and logos for, for people. And I just started getting like bigger and bigger, you know, a, a clients and, uh, but it was never a full-time thing. Mm-hmm. It was just kind of something. And I would, I was happy like coming home from work and then working all weekend or wor- working late into the night, um, on, on the side thing. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, what can I say? It, it, it's something that took many, many years, but, um, in doing so, 
uh, I was building a reputation. And so your brand, you know, your brand is what people say when you're not in the room. You know, um, people knew that I delivered. People knew that I that I collected. Yes, I got ripped off here and there. Um, you know, but um, I began the process of building relationships and and uh, and, and doing a lot of the local stuff. Um, you know, as the advent of uh, of of, of um, the internet came around. One of my part-time jobs was at a print shop. Mm-hmm. And at this print shop, I, I saw people, I saw how not to run a business because the guy that was running the print shop was um, taking people's deposits and not not printing the jobs and going on quote unquote vacations, but not really going anywhere and just shutting down for a couple of weeks. And the longer I stayed there, I initially met him because um, I needed him to print a business card for me because I was, I needed some for networking. You know, I was going to a fraternity event and I wanted to give out my card and, and he was like, oh, you looking for work? I was like, sure. And so I would, I worked at the newspaper. I was my first like quote unquote real job, and uh, and I worked there in, in composing, which was like putting the newspaper pages together. Mm-hmm. I worked up to being an ad designer, but at this print shop. I saw this guy literally ripping people off. And then I knew I had to kind of get out of there because people were associating me with him. And and right before my exit, um, people that I wanted to do business with that were coming in, I would kind of give them my card. And I said, you know what? In a couple of weeks, I'm not going to be here. <laughs> so you were already sourcing yeah, clients. I was like, and if you need stuff designed, you know, hit me up because this 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 shop's not going to be open much longer. And uh, and it wasn't. The guy, the guy, turns out the guy was like, would do this all over the country. He'd kind of come around, open up a shop, rip people off and... And, and then just open up somewhere else, burn, literally burning bridges. And um, that's how I got some of my earlier clients um, doing that, just working from home. Um, and I, I kind of think I always thought I'd, I'd just grow it that way, just working from home. I never had this idea of I'm going to have my own business like mm-hmm. I do now. So what happened was... Um, I uh, got laid off. So let's do, yeah. let's before we get to yeah. layoff, yeah. because I want to talk about walk, Walker. That's yeah. not just some everyday company no. you get to waltz into and get a yeah. job. So how did you end up there? Well, yeah, that's a great question. So I, I, I left the newspaper to go work at this direct mail company in Stanford. Um, so I did a lot of direct marketing. Um, and it's uh, it, it wasn't the most exciting creative, but I learned that creative doesn't always have to look pretty to get people to open it. And, and I learned how to A-B test and all this. So it was like advertising, marketing, direct mail, junk mail kind of marketing. Um, and a lot of people were bailing from that company to go work for this eccentric, you know, millionaire named Jay Walker. And that's kind of how it started. People were leaving uh, my company um, to go uh, work for Jay. And then once some of the folks that I worked with, at, at the time it was called CUC, and then it became Ascendant, um, had a bunch of names. But People, people were like, hey, you got to come here now because we're, we're building a team together. The, the the creative and the graphics and that whole world is very incestuous. It's kind of mm-hmm. like the same people kind of, if you know, good talent, you kind of pull them in where people move and people, you know, some people pulled me in there. The funny story about going to Priceline uh, or Walker at the time was... Um, now I had two kids. I had two two young kids. I had a mortgage. You know, I was like 27. Um, I had bills. Um, I had my own house, and uh, and I needed a, I needed a decent salary. Mm-hmm. And because it was a startup, they offered me. Um, like 30k salary, but then like 50k in stock. That's how it goes. And yes. And I couldn't do it. And and you know, of course, at some point the planets aligned that the, that stock could have been like three million dollars or something, you know. But I needed to get paid hourly, so I took the hourly rate and I came and go as I pleased. And I billed them and I got paid, and it was you know it was lucrative for somebody my age, and it was exciting. But when it went public, I saw everybody that was full time cashing cash out. out and yes. become like millionaires, and I was like, damn, like. 
like, what the heck? Like, I missed out on this. And so when Priceline moved to Norwalk, I didn't want to go. I wanted to stay at Walker. And for a number of reasons, I didn't like the corporate world because if in the corporate world, I found that if you had too many ideas, people didn't like that. They wanted you to kind of stay in your role. And I was always kind of like, you know, you're an entrepreneur if you're button heads with management a lot. Oh, for if sure. If you think you're not going to take, you know, uh, you know, a direction from somebody that's not as smart as you or doesn't have the best idea as you, then you're not cut out for corporate America because you're supposed to kind of, you know, stay in your lane. And, and be I, a corporate drone. And yes. be a drone mm-hmm. and be a pillar. And then you got a guy that's been there for 20 years and all he cares about is his paycheck and so forth. And um wasn't for me. So anyway, I didn't want to go to Priceline and be in a cube. When And, and now that all the fun stuff, if you will, was done, now uh, I, I didn't want to be relegated to doing business cards and PowerPoints and stuff like that. So Walker Digital was more enticing to me because now it was like, well, Priceline was just one of, you know, 400 patents that Jay Walker had. We're going to do this again and again and again. And maybe now my mind was, I'm going to get on board on the next big get thing. Get another chance, and yes. And now I'm going to hit the millions. And so that was the carrot that was was kind of dangled in front of all of us. And for many, many years, it was like the running joke was like, this is it. This is the big idea. And um, and put a lot of hours in, uh, a lot of time away from home working on these ideas. And Jay was a really hardworking guy himself. Um, And so he he really motivated us to work on these big ideas to see if we could turn them public and turn them big. And and unfortunately, nothing ever got as big as as Priceline did. And um, to the point where the market crashed in 08 and um, I was called into his office and, you know, and and it was like, you know, uh, this, you know, this, 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 this dream that I had that he was going to, I was going to help him strike it rich. And then he was going to sprinkle something on me, uh, turned into like, you know what? That's not going to be my big payoff. My big payoff was working with him for 10 years and learning how to take an idea and turn it into a company. So I, I instead of being dejected, I said, you know what? I'm going to be grateful of the time that I spent here. And yeah, did I think that there were some people that may have had it out for me or, you know, politically things were changing? Yes. But I said, you know what? There's this not even if I'm 99.9% sure that I've been done wrong or whatever. There's this one percent chance that maybe it is strictly business, and um, I chose to focus 100% of my energy into what I was going to do next, and not worry about why I was losing my job, why my dream of becoming like getting this windfall and sailing into the sunset uh, was going to happen didn't happen. Um, so that's kind of how you know uh, I, I uh, you know. Left Walker. It wasn't it wasn't on my own terms. You know? Okay, and I, and many people have this story. From, yeah, you know the crash. Mm-hmm. So you walk out that day. Yeah. Um, with the banker's box or what yeah. have you. Yeah. Personal effects. Did you have a nest egg saved? No. So no nest egg. I was living beyond my means. Got it. Because okay. I thought I was gonna get rich from working right. there. At some point, it was all gonna so like. I was charging out. things. <laughs> I was I was uh, flashy. I was you know working in in Stanford and if and uh, you know you're you're around Mercedes and. Jaguars and and this and you never feel like you're you know you're an exact you know you're you're living up to whatever the standards of the Gold Coast are. I was commuting from here from Shelton into a very affluent you know part of the state and um, just knew that something was going to hit. Mm-hmm. So my wife was very frugal and normal and you know didn't live beyond her means. But me on the other hand. Um, you know, my my eyes were bigger than my stomach, if you will, bigger than my wallet. So when this happened, it it, it was a big wake up call. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So no no nest egg. No. 
everybody's getting laid off yeah. at, the, at that point. Yeah. Um, and I was in law school at the time, and I've spoken about it on this show. So yeah. what we were experiencing is law students having taken an offer letter to the Mercedes dealership and mm. gotten a car, mm. right, a luxury vehicle, because <laughs> they had the offer letter. So mm. it's like, oh, I'm going to be making 160 or what yeah, have you, whatever was supposed to be, this. I can afford yeah. this. So they're, you know, setting themselves up to live in the, the lap of luxury yeah. and then getting another letter that's like, actually, about that offer, yeah, we're rescinding it. Oh, no. Which hadn't happened, you yeah. know, and I don't know how many years, but the the economy across the board was just like tanked. Yeah. So people were saying, you know what? No, sorry, we're, we're taking that back. We can't mm-hmm. bring you on. Um, but most of those people, not all, but most are just single folks, right? Mm-hmm. You're just, you never had the money. You didn't know what it was right. like to make that money. You might have to make some adjustments. Right. But you had already acquired probably some debt. Yep. Had, you know, bills and money going out that required a certain salary. Yep. Um, so at that point, did you start to scramble? Like, I got to find something else? Yes. So I was offered, because I'd been there for that long, I was offered a six-month severance package. Okay. So I, I was fortunate enough to have gone in the maybe the second wave. Mm-hmm. I think the third wave of folks I got laid off, they didn't get severance. But um, I don't remember exactly. But I received severance, which I knew wasn't required of Jay uh, or whatever. You know, I thought it was very generous of him to at least offer that. So that's why I didn't blow a gasket. I remember sitting in there saying the serenity prayer, smiling, thanking him, taking it as taking it on the chin. Um, you know, you see in movies, people throw tantrums and go crazy in, in, in you know, in corporate, you know, they take your security key card. Mm-hmm. There's somebody that's going to walk you out. They literally wait for you to pack your box. If so, they let you pack if it. If they let right. you pack it. Um, and it, it was very much like that, where I just accepted the offer, shook his hand. I, I knew he was a silver bullet. You know, he's just too important of a man to burn any bridges with. Um, so uh, and he, he he plays a key role in, in, uh, in the development of my business. Uh, later on. Um, so I basically, you know, uh, said, okay, I've got, I've got six months severance, but I, my goal was to find a job immediately Okay. and then have that severance be that nest egg that could help pay bills or, you know, have something in my savings, you know, cause even though I was making good money, I was expecting this windfall. I wasn't saving money. I was spending it. I was, um, you know, uh, being extra, you know, for a long time. And so this was kind of like a real wake up call to, um, you know, I remember my wife, if I had, a, you know, at the time back then you would buy CDs, you know, anymore. But um, in 08, you know, if I had a Blu-ray movie or a DVD or a CD, she, she'd kind of be like, what are you doing? You know, you don't have a job. So it was very tough. It was very humbling because I was the breadwinner. Mm-hmm. And now my wife was, and, um, you know, I had all these headhunters, you know, I had like 12 headhunters 12. and nobody could find me a job. Yeah. I mean, I had, I had everybody calling me. I was on, you know, LinkedIn. I was on, you you know, we didn't have Indeed back then, but um, you would literally just go meet with somebody that was going to be your representative mm-hmm. and nothing. I just could not find a job. And uh, I was willing to take anything. Um, I was interviewing for like, you know, $25 an hour uh, junior designer positions at, you know, like local, uh, you know, Hispanic uh, directories or mm-hmm. Hispanic phone books or whatever. Um I was just trying to piece together a living. Um, and in the process, I was letting also letting everybody else out there know, hey, I'm no longer at Walker. Um, I'm available full time to do creative. And I put together um, a business card. I put together a, a little portfolio and I would just deliver them. I would mail them. I would walk in and bring them into places and uh, really just say, hey, like I'm available um, to support your team. Uh, I remember feeling like since there were a lot of people getting laid off that 
this the, the the climate might be good for consultants sure. or people that were freelancing because they they you know the work still needs to get done it's mm -hmm. just not a full-time team so i kind of was i started to think if i if i hustle hard enough um i can make this work and so i just um you know set up an office at home and just said you know what i'm just gonna work from home and this is gonna be this is gonna be my thing i'm just gonna be this freelance guy that uh you know gets it done so in that in that moment, I'm sure there were who knows how many people in the same position yeah. as you. We're like, you know what? I'm about to just like loan yeah. myself out and get yeah. it done. Did you ever feel like it was a race to the bottom? Like just sort of like who's the cheapest, you know, because so many people needed work? Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. And and um and there were places that you could go uh um, you know, online and get get designs done for 5 bucks. Fiverr, yes. Mm -hmm. 99 designs and so forth. So, it really it really forced me to tap into my network um and working at an incubator, you know, the the my associates were all the people that had left, they were all kind of entrepreneur minded. So, they were all starting their own things. They all had ventures, you know, that they were trying to to uh, take off and uh, they became some of my earliest clients. And in fact, um, one of the ways Jay monetized his business was to um, go after people that were infringing on some of his patents. Mm -hmm. So when he laid off, laid off the creative team, he was like, well, you know, I'm not going to innovate, but I am going to kind of switch gears and go after folks like Capital One and Sony and Apple. And he hired this, this, this very famous IP law firm out of Dallas called IP Navigation Group. They became one of my first clients because Jay referred them to me. Wow. And that was a breakthrough moment. And I, and I tell you why, because um, he called me up. He said, hey, do you do you know how to do um, presentations for courtrooms? And I was like, sure, you know, I, I can get it done and never had done one before. And then once his associates started kind of calling me and grilling me more, they got the sense that I had never done it. It turns out I could have done it. It turns out it was just like regular PowerPoint. But the way they made it sound, there was a point where I tapped out. And had to kind of, I didn't want to screw anything up or ruin the relationship. So, uh, you know, I was transparent and honest and said, you know, okay, this is where I, this is where I exit. And they, and they said, well, you know, we are, we are looking to rebrand. Can you put together a proposal to rebrand our, our firm? And I was like, well, that's something I'm really good at. That's what I do. And, um, and I got the gig and I knew he was like the top 10, 11th wealthiest guys. And I knew what the market could sustain. And so, um, he was one of those guys where I, I said, well, you know, here's what I want. I think I said I wanted 150 bucks an hour or mm -hmm. something like that. And he was like, well, you know, that's that's up there. But, you know, you must be good. And Jay's referring you. So he signed on and I rebranded him and redid his logo and did all the stationery and so on and so forth. And then a few months later, he was coming up to visit Jay and he reached out to me and he said, hey, uh, Ramon, I'm going to be in Stanford. I'm thinking of shooting up to visit you and check out your your place. <laughs> Meanwhile, and that's where I was like, oh, shoot, here I am. I was in my pajamas and, and I had my dog on my lap and all this other stuff. And I said, I can't meet this guy in Starbucks. And this is this this became a breakthrough moment because um, I had already been pairing up with some other uh, freelancers in the area and, and, and became familiar with the Regis office centers. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, we had done a pitch there with another uh, strategic partner of mine. So I was familiar with it. We had one in town. I knew the deal. So I went there and I signed up for like whatever the minimum was. I think I got like the off, I got an office, I got use of an office like five days a month for 200 bucks a month. Mm -hmm. And the smallest contract I could get was like six months. So I was like, done. This guy's coming. He's important to me. I want to be ready. So, um, 
Um, I signed the, signed the deal. I went to the office. I had the receptionist kind of practice my name. I brought in a couple pictures. I brought my Mac in. <laughs> Trying to make it look like you've been there. Yeah, right? like this is my office. Yeah, you know, so um, I knew the day he was in town. Guy never shows up. So you do all of that. Yes. And he's like, yeah, not going to make yeah. it. Did he even like contact he called you? Me, okay. He called me and said, hey, I'm still here with Jay. Um, not going to make it up there. I got I to gotta go back to, you know, JFK. I'm, I'll, I'll miss my flight. But I was ready. The point is that I got out of my house. I got decked out. I had an office. Um, and I had a receptionist. And I had a kitchen. And I had a room where I could, you know, meet. I mean, it, it was dope. It was like, okay, so now I got this. Now what? Now I got this contract for six months. So what did I do? It's like now I started meeting my clients there. I would They would say, well, when can you get together? I would say, well, I'm all booked, but I can meet you Wednesday. But Wednesday was the day that I had the office. Because <laughs> you got to keep it to the five right, days a month. Right, yes. right. So then that became the thing. And then I started hiring freelancers. And, and now my office became like surrounded by freelancers and extension cords and this and that. And I, it just started growing there. And I ended up having, you know, an open house there. I said, guys, if we're going to really go all out, let's, you know, so we invited the chamber and we had food and we showed a video. And pretty soon I'm, I'm using the conference room. And this is Regis. This you is invited Regis. the chamber. Yeah. Now, just for context, because yeah. people may hear this in 2019 and be like, ah. That's like a co-working. Yeah, because everybody, everybody yeah. said we work now, know your yeah. house, like, you yeah. know, the farm, all these places. Yeah. It's common. But right. back then, right. it was still a bit of a, of a novelty. It was. And it wasn't as funky as it is mm-hmm. now. It was like literally like. But very vanilla. Very <laughs> vanilla. Like you can be a lawyer or you mm-hmm. can be an accountant. It was no, none of this common area collaboration stuff. It's like you went into your little office, closed the door and that was it. Um and so having the open house there and then having as as we grew, as I started getting two or three freelancers in for projects, um, we started to outgrow it. And so by outgrowing it, I needed to use their conference room. And then the conference room, now, mind you, it was 200 bucks a month. I could barely afford that. The conference rooms were 90 bucks an hour. Right. So now they start nickel and diamond you. And now I was like, shoot, if I use this conference room even once a month for a few hours, it's going to like blow my my budget out. Like I'm not. And then at that point, I had a friend of mine who had who who just again, the universe conspires to help you. If you're if you're on the path, things start to fall into place. Case in point, um, I had a friend of mine who had an office downtown here in Shelton. And he said, hey, we're dissolving, you know, my company. I don't need the space. I have an extra office and then we can share the conference room. You mind looking at it? And I said, well, how much is this going to cost me? And he said, well, it's 500 bucks a month. So now I had to say, wow, I got to go from 200 to 500. But I have a conference room and, you know, I can, um, you know, I can, uh, I don't have to pay 90 bucks an hour for it. And I can put my name on the wall and I can do all this. And that was just like, I was just starting to get on Facebook and it was start, it, it was kind of like, I started getting the, the buzz of like, wow, this is good content for me to share and post and kind of see. And so people started watching the journey of like, wow, he went from his, from his house. Pictures I was posting were like me and my dog in my pajamas. And then that went to like, now I'm at Regis. And then that went to like, wow, now I'm putting my, my sign on the, on the, you know, now I have my own office. Nobody knew. It's kind of this like fake it till you make it kind of thing right. because nobody really knew like I was subleasing. Nobody knew what I was paying. They just knew I had, now I just moved downtown. So that perception of moving downtown was like inspiring growth. It's a big I was scared to death. Mm-hmm. I was like, how am I going to afford 500 bucks a month mm-hmm. when I could barely afford 200? But each one of these leaps kind of took me to that next level, took me to the next level. And um, then uh, within like a year or so, I ended up taking over the whole, the whole space. 
Wow. You know, and then we were we were downtown for, you know, um, about five years or so and had another open house there and and um, and just kind of really began to cement ourselves in the community, doing a lot of community service, um, volunteering, um, you know, um, just staying on the radar. Um, you know, getting in the paper, doing interviews, doing this kind of thing. Um, and, um, you know, we've been in here in this space now for two years. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, it's, it's been the growth hasn't been huge spikes, but it's been incremental and sustainable. I think if you grow too fast or if you have if, if you think of your, your business growth as like an EKG chart, if, if you have really high spikes going up, you could have really high spikes going the other My way. Crash, yes. right. So I, I've just been very cautious. I'm really reckless in other you know, other parts of my life. But when it comes to my business, um, I'm very cautious because I care a lot about my team and I don't want to be in that situation where I need to lay off somebody. I know what it feels like. So um, everybody that's joined me has started out kind of as a freelancer or an intern. And then if the chemistry is right and, and I can um, utilize them and their services, then they become part of the team. I guess there's this point where for the folks that are out there wondering, well, how do you go from, you know, freelancer to, to putting them on payroll? It's kind of like when 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 the, when the freelancer cannot perform fast enough for the for the level of service that I want to give my clients, then I know, you know, I, I got to uh, shit or get off the pot. Right. I know we're supposed to refrain. <laughs> but at that point, I can't expect somebody who's who's working a full time who's going to come home and then work for me as a freelancer. I can't demand him to work as fast as I want or deliver as fast as I want unless right. I'm willing to say, you know what, I need you to quit your job and come with me. And I better have a damn good reason to convince them or be able to paint a picture of my vision to convince these people to leave their jobs to come work for me. And that's what I've had to do to build a team that I have. I want to highlight two things in what you just recounted. The first is for people who don't know who J. Scott Walker is, right? Mm. We're talking someone whose his name is attached to 450 patents or mm. something like that. Net worth estimated at $1.6 mm. billion dollars mm. worth of B. Some people would have left that environment and maintained a good rapport, mm. but had the expectation like this guy knows everybody. Mm. I'm going to leverage him mm -hmm. and I'm going to go from zero to 60 because of his name and mm. what he's able to. To mm -hmm. refer me, you know, or who he's able to refer me to. And this, in this instance, first thing he, he sent, it wasn't even necessarily your area of expertise, right. even though you figured out you can do it. Mm -hmm. One small, isolated, discreet thing. Mm -hmm. And from that, you did get a little bit of a bump, mm -hmm. right? And I, I think the lesson here is, I think when people have these connections, they hone in on them mm -hmm. and think that that's the chariot they're going to ride mm -hmm. to success. Mm -hmm either internally, mm -hmm. right, as an employee or just by use, utilizing their name and leveraging mm -hmm. their referral mm -hmm. to be able to sit high on the hog like mm -hmm. they, they are. And often in those types of relationships, they start small, mm -hmm. whether it's intentional or not. They'll make throw you a, through, throw you a few mm -hmm. crumbs, see what you do with that. Mm -hmm. And then it grows from there. So I think um, that's an important lesson, not despising the small beginnings right. and the, the, the smaller, smaller referrals that come and know they will grow over, over time yeah. in an incremental basis. But then also another thing I want to highlight is while you are very tactical and intentional in how you expand your team, you understand the value of taking care of people. Yeah, absolutely. Because often what entrepreneurs will do is continue to try to keep the expenses and the risk 
as low as possible. Mm. And that means draining people and exhausting them and trying to get the best out of them for the least, which is not sustainable either. So being calculating about it, but also knowing when you got to take care of your people. And I think those two things are very important lessons for anyone who's trying to grow anything. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and Jay became, I I didn't tap him for uh, referrals or to introduce me to people or even you know, for the work that he might need down the line, but he did become part of my story. And um, I think there's a lesson there where we've all got to cut our teeth somewhere. Yes. And don't look at your time at Morgan Stanley or Hewlett Packard or, um, you know, Priceline for me or Walker um, as time wasted or, you know, I gave my best years of my life there. That is part of your story. And when I first started out, even now, when I, you know, uh, you know, 11 years later, when I speak to entrepreneurs or I speak to students, um, I mention my time there because people know that company. You know, I, I am dating myself when I say I was there when it, when it was just an idea. But every every single one of us has something in our story that gets people's attention mm-hmm. and gets them to listen. If I just come in and just talk about, oh, look how great I am and here's all the things I've done, people start to tune out. But if I mention a name or a company that they may be familiar with that doesn't have a negative connotation but has a has a either a positive one or an agnostic one, at least they pay they're paying attention now. So when I mention Priceline, they're like, oh yeah, I know those Shatner commercials or I use Priceline all the time. Now I can go into my story. So it's it's it'll always be part of my story. Um, he was very tough guy to work with um, because he's just, you know, he would say stuff like, uh, I know that's what I asked for, but that's not what I want. You know, and and then you're like, okay, got to figure that out. But it's helped me deal with clients. Um, it's helped me um, deliver on deadline. You know, you got to look at, you know, uh, it's kind of like losing someone, right? You either can be upset or you can be grateful for the time they were with you. And and that's how I kind of looked at that experience. I think it prepared me for for where I am today. And it'll always, you know, always be part of my story. Mm-hmm. You know. So where when did you get to the point of your in your business where you said, you know what, I can really compete with the big guys? Yeah. When did that happen? Uh, I guess when um, we let's see, what, what's a good moment? Um, um, I like to say I always felt that we mm-hmm. could, but um, I'm sure that there was a there was a, a real kind of turning point. Um, we had it. We had a young man come in with an idea uh, for a startup, very much like the early stages of Priceline, and uh, and that was about four or five years ago. And he's he's got a thriving business. So I think that when he came to us with an idea, and we were able to kind of strategize how to launch it, and and we developed the name for it, the logo, the website, the platform, and now we're doing introductions to get him to get clients. I think that's when we realized like we've got the makings of something great because we have when we started. I guess when we started developing our case studies that we could point to and say, here's here's not, here, we didn't just bottom feed this or we didn't get white labeled by another agency, but we this is our homegrown client from beginning to end. We realize we can compete with pretty much anyone uh, that, that does what we do. Um, and um, it's a great feeling because that once you have a case study, then that helps you win the next job and the next job. And you may not, in the beginning, you may not uh, break the bank uh, with that first uh, client, but you've got to understand that there are, there are there are other values besides monetary values. Um, you know, I know the old cliche is that, oh, yeah, do this for free. It'll be great exposure for you. And I'm not talking about getting exploited, but I am I am talking about looking at opportunities sometimes uh, more long term, looking at it. Um, will this lead me to some other project? Do I think this client can be a long term client? Um 
can I leverage this for something else? Um, if the money's not always there, sometimes it's it's you, there's maybe a vertical that you want to get into that you think could be a good niche for you. Mm-hmm. So in this case, if we were touting ourselves as like we're the startup specialist, first thing somebody's going to ask you is, okay, well, what what are some of the startups that you've helped right. launch? Now we have one that we can point to that's no BS. It's our own, and and he's and it's a successful business. So I think once we had our own case study from beginning to end under our belt, we realized we can do this for for people all over the world. That's incredible. So shifting gears a bit, mm-hmm. describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Um. Well, we recently uh, had an opportunity to uh, pitch um, uh, Nesby. Uh, this was this was in the last fall. And so people uh, who don't know National Society of Black, Black Engineers. Yes, right. Mm-hmm. So this 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 opportunity fell right in our wheelhouse. We um we uh, knew some people in leadership there. Some fraternity brothers had some contacts. Um, it was squarely in our wheelhouse because they needed this this large scale website um um that had all this function of of registrations and events and all this other stuff. Um, and it was a six figure project. Mm-hmm. So we were like, man, this would really this would be awesome to win this. Um, we, we prepared uh, an elaborate video. Um, we did mock-ups. We went above and beyond just because of how much was at stake. Um, we were selected to pitch. We drove down from Connecticut with my team to Alexandria, to the headquarters of Nesby, and uh, because we were finalists, and we documented the whole trip, and um, and uh, you know went down there. You know we we, we stopped at uh, 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 bus uh, what is it bus, bus boys, boys and, and poets. poets, and we were like pre gaming, and we were like we're gonna we're gonna do this, and we went down, and we couldn't have done a better job in our presentation in our video. Um, they loved us. We left there, you know, ecstatic. And uh, then we find out we didn't win. Um, so there are times where you could do everything right, do your best and um, drive somewhere, you know, drive, you know, five, six hundred miles uh, each way, same day and turn back around and um, and meet and get met with failure and lose. And that's what happened to us. And uh, it was an opportunity for me to um, look at everything we did and know that we did our best and know that in some cases you're going to the universe is going to help you dodge bullets that you may not know uh, why. Or you just have to trust that for some reason this wasn't the right project for you. And then you got to look at um, what were all the positives? What, what hoops did you jump through? It stung. It hurt. I'm not going to lie. But I have to be able to come back here and uh, keep my team as motivated as they were Um before we went down there and lost. Um, so it, it just made us that much kind of stronger. We know that if that um, we could have done that through Skype or Zoom or something like that and, and probably would have been just fine and probably would have gotten the same result, but we wanted to go above and beyond. Um, and so we are always looking for ways to stand out um, and uh, be different and go above, uh, you know, uh, you know, like like it says in here, always deliver more than expected. But it doesn't guarantee that you're going to win. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, it, it was those, it was that kind of thing that we need we needed to like come back and not, you know, sometimes you go out like you go out on these hunts and you're not going to kill the big, you know, woolly mammoth and bring it back. You, you're gonna, you know, it's gonna it's gonna go to somebody else. And all we can do is trust the process, um, trust that you know the the final decision was out of our control and that that you know perhaps you know whoever they did find to do it was a better fit and and we 
we got to live to fight another day. So I, I want to dig a little bit on this subject mm -hmm. because I think we've all been there, any of us who are service providers or mm -hmm. in a situation where you're competing for business. And as you mentioned, sometimes it is just a dodged bullet or somebody mm -hmm. came with something a little who bit knows? more flashy. Who knows? Yeah. But have you ever had a moment or knowing that you missed out on something because of an implicit bias due to the size of your company or the fact that your name's Ramon Peralta mm -hmm. or anything like that? Uh, I'm sure it has. Uh, um, I know that it that I felt it affected me when I was looking for a job. Um, you know, I, with 12 headhunters, I was pumping out a lot of resumes, and I think that people saw my name and didn't give me a call. You know, um, I remember being in a situation with a client, and um, early on, when it was just Jorge and I, uh, going to Stanford, meet with a client, uh, and then get introduced. And, and I'll never forget it. The client goes around the room and he's like, his name was Charles. And he was like, come on in, you know, and I want you to meet the team. And he was like, and this is Bob and this is Mary and this is Jimmy and this is Carol and Ramon and Jorge, you know? And it was just like, for a while I had to tell people we're not a Latino firm or we're not um, a Hispanic firm. We're just the best firm out there, you know? And, uh, but on the flip side to that is being being on the other side of the table for me it is it brings me great joy to be able to hire people that look like us mm -hmm. or just hire people in general that are just talented and know that I can give people a chance to work in an environment where um, you don't have to be the oddball. You don't have to feel like, you know, uh, I'm the only one that of, of my type that they're going to hire for this position to to fill a quota or, or not fill a quota or what have you. Um, it, it's a great feeling um, to be able to, to do that and uh, to speak to give hope to, to younger kids that hope to do that one day. Um, and I, I said this to my frat brother that, that, that was on top chef. Um, I think he, he was just eliminated, but he's, he's from, uh, African descent. And, uh, he was mentioning to me how, uh, and, and social about how he's representing Africa and African, mm -hmm. uh, you know, ingredients and dishes and stuff on national TV. And, it, and the truth of the matter is that, uh, when you're a person of color in this country, um, we don't have a choice of wanting to represent or not. I, right. I can't wake up one day and just say, I'm just going to blend in today. And I don't really, doesn't matter what I do and how it affects my people or people that look like me. It's a responsibility that we have to carry whether we want to or not. Like that, you just have to accept that. And for me, it, it you know, it brings me great joy to tell these guys, you know, we're going to go out there and be the best, you know, and, and we're changing perception of, you know, what it means for us to be um, Hispanic or Latino or people of color. The truth of the matter is we don't have the luxury of being mediocre. Nope. <laughs> we are not going to get by with just doing just enough because we're getting judged on a, on a different set of standards. Um, so I'm very, I'm very sensitive to us being late for things. We want to be early. Um, when it comes to what we deliver, we deliver more. It's, it's, it's the sign here in the conference room. Um, we live and breathe by that based on people are already expecting us to not deliver or to do less or to be inferior strictly without um, giving us a chance to even see our work is just based on what their perceptions are, you know, what our national leadership is putting out there, right. you know, um, whether people say, no, nah, no, nah, I, I treat everybody differently. There are some implicit bias that people just have in general. And so we want to be above and beyond. So our service is through the roof mm -hmm. because, you know, if another agency can get by with kind of being just okay, we're not going to get that same chance. I use that as an advantage. I think it forces us to 
um, to strive to do better, to do great work. Um, it's kind of like um, my wife was recently talking about, I think it's called the metaphor, it's ACEs, but I forget what it stands for. But it's basically um, kids that grow up and they've had, um, uh, they've witnessed abuse or they've been abused or they live in the hood or they, they, they saw somebody get shot or, you know, there's all these checkpoints. But basically it's the equivalent of them having like uh, PTSD and living with that on a daily basis. And it's, and they're talking about it in education so that um, when a when a teacher calls them out on something and they react a certain way, it's because they're basically like on edge all the right. time. Um, having had some of those experiences, um, I think for us is an advantage mm -hmm. because it allows me to be comfortable in any environment. If I'm in a boardroom or or I am uh, in the hood, it's like we have this, this advantage of being able to navigate in any um, circumstance. And yes, I am conscious when somebody comes in here um, and, and we sit around the table and and, um, you know, the the uh, the white employees are the minority here at, mm -hmm. at my firm. I, I am conscious to an extent of well, what how, are, are, are people going to be comfortable coming in? Well, the truth of the matter is once they see what we do here and the way we perform and and, and what they're going to get as far as quality, um, I pride myself in changing whatever perceptions they had when they walked in. It's also opened my eyes that um, there are a lot of good folks out there that don't feel that way that, that, that uh, don't see us that way. It's not everyone. So we, we try not to have like a myopic view or generalize others in the way we don't want to be kind of generalized. Um, but have I have I missed specific opportunities? Um, I haven't blatantly seen it, mm -hmm. you know, that I can point to. But um, but I, I do feel that uh, um, it's, it's kind of something that it's always in the back of your mind. Um, and it's just, again, it's that responsibility, but it's also um, the reality of, right. of living in living in the in America during these times. Exactly. You know, absolutely. So these times aside, mm -hmm. what is the vision mm -hmm. for the next chapter for Peralta Design and for Ramon personally? Yeah. So that's a great. That's a great question. So we're looking at what our next 10 years looks like. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're in our 11th year. Um you know, I am, uh, you know, 48, so I don't want to do this forever. Mm -hmm. um, but um, our goal is going to be to develop a succession plan uh, for the company. So perhaps um, Jorge, who leads our web team, can take over the business and I can maybe within the next 10 to 15 years um, take a, a more consultative role. Um, I currently do business development, but I also do creative. So it would be to continue to groom our team for leadership. Mm -hmm. So I invest a lot in them and and leadership training um, so that eventually we can get to a point where um, the team can continue the company and I can take more of like a kind of behind the scenes role and eventually completely fade out. So sure. I think I think in 15 years, I'd be happy to hand the keys over. Um, my kids don't want the business. They don't. No. So um, they, they both do something totally different. Now my daughter teaches and my son uh, is an investment analyst and, um, you know, my wife's a school teacher, so my wife is basically looking to retire at some point. And so, you know, my vision is continue to grow the business for the next 10 years. And then within the last five years, um, you know, have some kind of succession plan mm -hmm. in place where where um, Jorge, uh, if he so wishes, um, can continue um, the business. And, uh, you know, 
do we want to acquire other businesses that, that sometimes comes to mind um, you know so there may be some of that within the next 10 years where one of the fastest ways to grow is to acquire some smaller firms that have good books of business we are looking to expand our office in Florida um, and uh, there's there are some opportunities brewing right now to hire some business development folks that have books of business um, down in that way um, but um, I think this year we'll probably hire a couple of people um, we're looking to hire um, some mo uh, motion uh, designers full-time nice. and uh, mobile app development full-time. So uh, I think we'll see some growth here. But uh, I don't I don't have a vision of having like, you know, growing to like 100 people mm -hmm. or something like that. Um, one of the things that we liked at Walker was keeping the team under 50 um, keeps keeps everybody kind of keeps a healthy tension, which is something that in a creative space uh, is very important. Awesome. So for those who will hear this and say, this is my wheelhouse, I freelance mm -hmm. or I'm a little, little bit younger and I mm -hmm. want to intern. Do you take those inquiries into consideration on a rolling basis? Is it a seasonal thing? How does yeah. that work? That's a great question. Um, first of all, I'm I uh, am not afraid to talk to other people mm -hmm. th that want to uh, ask me questions about how they should price things or what did they do in this or that situation. I don't see other designers or other agencies as competitors. Mm -hmm. um, I see them as potential strategic partners. And I think that there's a myth of scarcity when people feel like there's not enough to go around. And I look at the entire world as my market. Um, especially having a client in Qatar now. So I don't think there's any shortage of clients. Um, so I'm not afraid to talk to a quote unquote up and coming competitor. I don't want to be, you know, uh, Carlito and Benny Blanco and insult the up and coming kid. And then he eventually, you know, puts me out or whatever. Um, I rather, I rather mentor that young man or young woman, um, and, and, uh, share whatever insights I, I, I can with them. Um, because I, I actually see them as potential Eventually, maybe we work together. Sure. You know, on something bigger. So um, we're always, um, you know, I sit on a board for the UB. I'm the alumni board president, so I get interns from UB. Um, I have two two interns coming in Wednesday from Junior Achievement, so we work with them. Um, I've had virtual internships. I've had interns that, that live in Virginia or live in Baltimore, and, wow. and we Skype them in. Because for those young people, having a real agency on their resume is going to uh, help them find work. So it's it's a small way for us to give back. And um, who knows? They might be some great talent, and they might be able to help us uh, on a project. So uh, always, you know, um, always willing to speak to young people that, that are looking to gain uh, insight or experience. That's awesome. Now shifting to prospective clients. Mm -hmm. Do you have a threshold uh, where you're like, they're just too small, either be it from a revenue perspective or working capital perspective or budget mm -hmm. to be able to work with you? Because I'm sure people will hear about all you do and say, yeah. oh, you know, I got I got some ideas. Yeah. But am I big enough yeah. for, for PD? Yeah, that's it's a good question. Um, while we do have some partners that um, that we've referred some of our smaller clients to, for the most part, we would like first right of refusal okay. um, because we're we we our whole thing is we launch brands mm -hmm. so you have to start somewhere so we really do like to say okay um here, here's what we would do in, in your case. Here's, here's phase. Here's what phase one looks like. So we, we really spend a lot of time with the launch strategy. And if, and you'd be surprised, um, very rarely is a, is a client, um, too small, mm -hmm. um, where unless they have a small vision or we don't think it's going to turn into anything. But if, if somebody's got a good idea, needs some strategy, um, we've helped local pizza places, pizza trucks, um, masons, you know, masonry companies and, um, 
with the thing with digital um, and, and digital marketing, they may not they may not use us for um, they may be too small where they don't they don't really need the branding and the big mm-hmm. high functioning website, but maybe they might need us to help them with social media or their digital footprint or or, or something else that uh, might not be as big as as big a budget. So um, I think I would recommend people that are interested in working with us visit our website. There's a link on our website where they they can uh, tell us about their project. We'll contact them. And um, in that questionnaire, there's a section where they can tell us what their budget is. Um, you know, there, there, there is, um, if they're too, too, you know, you know, not well-funded enough, um, if you will, I, I won't say cheap or anything like that, but if, if they're just really, really on the come up, um, then we'll recommend some online tools, maybe like, um, Wix or, mm-hmm. you know, Squarespace and we'll say, Hey, start here. Um, you know, um, and, um, as your business grows, come back and see us. But, um, I, I everybody's got to start somewhere. I don't, I don't knock anybody for where they begin. As long as you begin, um, it'll, it'll begin to grow. Okay. So how about you give everyone the website and wherever yeah. else they can find you online? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so we're, uh, on, on the web, it's PeraltaDesign.com, P-E-R-A-L-T-A-D-E-S-I-G-N.com. And then there is a link on our homepage where it says, tell us about your project. We also have a, uh, a free report card that we offer for, for clients that already have a website, but just aren't sure how it's performing or want to get some feedback. We run a diagnostic on that, um, site and and, uh, and and then they'll get a letter grade. And then based on the letter grade, we may be able to offer them some some insight as to how to improve. Um, we also do uh, explainer videos. They're mm-hmm. great for people that have ideas um, that um, they don't have the budget to build that, you know, new app or that new platform. But you'd be surprised what you can do with an animation because in the early stages, you don't need to have a functioning product. You just have to show somebody what that product's going to be able to do. Right. And oftentimes you can do that um, for a fraction of the cost. If you can't afford a video, I would recommend at least a pitch deck. You know, do something in PowerPoint, do something in Keynote. But you've got to get everybody on the same page so that you can test this out, test the concept out, show the deck to people, see if they get it, see if they if you think there's a demand. I think too many people think they need, you know, 25, 50 or 100,000 before right. they can get their idea out. Um, but you'd be surprised. You can get an idea out with a short little video. You can you can do a PowerPoint and send that out and see if you get people to bite and invest and then go build it. Um, but this idea that um, it needs to be perfect before it launches. Um, we've seen too many people kind of go overseas and um, and unfortunately blow their budget. Mm-hmm. And then when the when the when they test their 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 concept out. People don't want to. People don't want to sign up for it, you know. Or, or they could have uh, made some tweaks to it earlier on before they spent all that money. Um, and it's unfortunate, you know. Um, we had one woman that spent her entire 401k. Uh, her and her son started this company. Uh, it was supposed to be like a, a Craigslist, you know, type of mm-hmm. site for businesses where, where instead of having a website, you had a landing page. And they had it built overseas. And then the the, the thing didn't work, uh, and it was clunky. And they brought it to us, and they wanted us to fix it. But she'd probably already spent 250,000 on oh this my thing. Gosh. Um and it was awful. And we said to her, look, you know, we could fix this. We could we could get it to work for you for like another 100 grand. But we would recommend that you um start over 
and we build it on a brand new platform, but that's going to cost you 150 grand. And uh, she says, no, I really don't want to start over. And I said, well, we don't want to take your money because if we fix it, we still don't think people are going to use it because it's it's very uh, it's not very user friendly. The platform is not modern. Um, we don't think that what we'll finish and deliver for you is 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 going to be satisfactory. So we suggest you go back to the, to the folks that worked on it for you and see if they'll fix it. And um, you know, my team was like, wait a minute, you're leaving you know six figures on the right. table. And I said, yeah, but I, I, we wouldn't it wouldn't ultimately be something we could point to and nothing we could be proud of. And I don't want to I don't want to take any more of their money and. And the woman said to me, you know, um, you're the first agency that's ever shown that kind of integrity wow. to us. And it was a big lesson for my team. Did did I sweat it and say, man, well, you know, that would have been good money? Yeah. But at the same time, there was a lesson to be taught there so that my team realizes it's not always about the money. Um, there there has to be some integrity um, in, in what we do. Otherwise, we are like everybody else. Absolutely. And that speaks to your focus on the long game. Yes. And not just short term gains, which so many people are always right. focus on, especially when you're not at a place where, you know, you've got the revenue to say, yeah, if we never, if we don't get another job, you mm-hmm. know, for the next two years, we're good. Mm-hmm. It's hard to make those, those tough decisions. Yeah, absolutely. And we're on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, not so much, but we're on there. LinkedIn. So what's your, uh, your so, handles on social media? Uh, Peralta Design on, on Facebook, um, Peralta Design HQ on Instagram, and then Peralta Design is just me if you want to follow my antics. Uh, I feel like you probably have some antics outside of this office. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do too much right now. I'm, I'm, I'm I am uh, rehearsing for Dancing with the Stars. Wait, so, what? Yeah, not the TV show. <laughs> the a local we're version. We're gonna do of a this? local okay. version for a local charity. That's gonna be May third. Um, and uh, I, I get paired up with a professional dancer, so mm-hmm. I'll be doing a cha cha. So I do that. I'm training for a half marathon. Uh, that I'm running in April, um, doing both of those things at the same time. Um, and, uh, I do quite a bit of traveling. So, uh, so yeah, I, 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 I just, uh, fill up, you know, I'm writing a book. Um, I am uh, reading like five books. Um, I just finished the Umbrella Academy on Netflix. <laughs> Great series. Uh, so, um, yeah, I, uh, I haven't had carbs or sugar in about 42 days. Oh wow! So um, that's been that's been exciting. So uh, yeah, I, I'm a bit of a maniac, but I think every entrepreneur is a little bit crazy. Oh yeah, you're my kind of guy. We're like all nuts. the plate spinning. Yeah, and it's, it's the only way enough. we thrive, right? Yeah. It's the only way we thrive. You can't just do. I don't understand people who are like, well, I went to work today and then I just sat down and right. you know had my dinner and watched an episode of something and went to bed. And I'm like, what? That no. sounds like a boring. Life. Yeah, I watch TV with uh, you know my phone out, a magazine yes. out. And, and maybe even my laptop. It's mm-hmm. just like multitasking is just how we're wired. Oh, I get it. Yeah. Well, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Me too. And I know DeMarcus, our producer, this is right up his alley. So I, I can see the wheel spinning already. We are excited to see what Peralta Design does and yeah. where you go from here. So yeah. thank you for thank coming you. on the Thanks show. Thanks for having me. To those who are listening, make sure you check out uh, what Ramon's got going on online, especially if you are creative and someone who wants to monetize that and make a sustainable living at it. I think he's a, a prime example that it can be done. Mm-hmm. So check that out. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26th. That's December 26ER.